She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode 11, Weeds. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and originally aired on Friday, January 24th, 1997 at 9 p.m. The previous week on January 17th, they aired a repeat of episode three, Dead Letters, at 9 p.m. In this episode, Frank Black and Cheryl Andrews of the Millennium Group arrive to assist a local sheriff when residents of an upscale gated community find themselves terrorized by a murderous kidnapper who seems to be making sons pay for the sins of their fathers. It was written by Frank Spotnitz and directed by Michael Pattinson. This is the first of two episodes that Spotnitz will write solo. Both are this season. He will also co-write three more with Chris Carter. And all three of those are in season three. Pattinson is a one and done. He's Australian and has other directing credits in TV and film, but nothing particularly X-Files adjacent or super interesting. Yeah, at least to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I glanced at his eye because when I saw that note, I was like, oh, I should look and make sure there's nothing in there that I'm like, whoa, but he did this. Um, That's and true. I'd be like, but Nick, how could you ignore? I mean, I watch Australian <laughs> TV, so I was like, maybe there's some show that I really like that like he's been part of. But yeah, yeah, I didn't see anything notable. I don't know that he's actually directed Australian TV, though. I think he's just Australian. So. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see anything at all. That, I mean, nothing really stood out. It wasn't like nothing, but it just like nothing that I was yeah. like, oh, I have to mention that. So. Yeah, I don't know why I mentioned he was Australian. I was just like, oh, he's Aust-. it said it, so I was like, he's Australian. Okay, if you're going to mention it, I'll mention it. Whatever. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> so Sunday, January nineteenth, Pierce County, Washington. A dark minivan drives through a neighborhood. The driver observes the residents, adults, and children, but then their images flash before his eyes. The playing children appear as zombies or corpses or something, and then the adults appear extremely aged. The driver pulls over and lays his head against the steering wheel, weeping. Then he turns and looks at a very large home, and in a flash, the scene grows dark with ominous black clouds flowing over the home. Then we're in the Comstock residence. It's 4.37 p.m., and there's people singing happy birthday, and apparently it's a birthday party for some douchey, nonplussed-looking teenager. His name is Josh. And there's cake and candles, and everybody like said everyone is singing, and we find out he's 16. So he begrudgingly blows out the candles, and then his father, who has just arrived and apologizing for being late, pulls him away from the cake and leads him to a set of side doors that lead outside. He opens the balloon festoon doors to reveal a brand new off-road motorcycle. <gasps> Whoa, that's a pretty sweet gift for being 16. Yeah, and all the guests kind of agree. Everyone's all, ooh, ah. And then still managing to look marginally unimpressed, Josh asks if he can take it out for a ride. His father says he has to be back by curfew. So Josh climbs on and fastens the helmet. And then his mother does not look happy about the situation and looks disapprovingly at her husband, who kind of looks away. So on the street... We see Josh start up the bike and he heads off down the road. And then a dark minivan parked nearby starts up and follows him. Then some time has passed and it's now dark. 
I mean, it is January in the Pacific Northwest, so it could be like 6 p.m. Because honestly, if the last scene was at 4.37 p.m., it was incredibly light outside yeah, at 4.37 yeah. p.m. It can start up here real early in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. I checked the charts and oh, the official nice. sunset on January 19th, 1997 in Tacoma, which is the county seat of Pierce County. And I think we'll find out that actually this is supposed to be in Tacoma would have been at 4.53 p.m. And civil sunset would have been at 5.27 p.m., which is actually when it's like dark. So anyway, Josh is still riding his dirt bike and he leaves the street and goes into an open field. And then a dark minivan pulls up to where he just was on the street and turns off its headlights. Inside the van, the driver picks up a long rod from across the passenger seat and a high power flashlight or torch for our British listeners, because that's 7% of you guys. And I don't know if they say torch <laughs> in Canada, but that's another 7% of you guys. So, yay. Anyway, <laughs> they walk towards the field wearing dark canvas sneakers with white trim and laces. Because we get to see their shoes. Anyway, Josh is like doing donuts in the field on his bike. And then a beam of light shines into his eyes and he's unable to see the person holding light. Josh is like, it's okay, I'm heading home. And then he gets zapped with something and he, he grabs his chest and he falls to the ground. And then he tries to scramble away on his back, which never works. Anytime you see people doing that, you know, they're in trouble. And then he's set upon by his attacker zapping him. And then Josh's face like flashes back and forth between like normal Josh and old man Josh as he's like, ah, ah. so weird. An alarm clock buzzes at 7 a.m. Linda Comstock, Josh's mother, reaches across the bed to turn it off and then gets up. We see her husband, Tom. Lying in bed, just staring at the clock, having not reacted to it, nor his wife reaching across him. But he does blink. So that's probably just so we don't think he's dead. So because he doesn't move at all. Linda enters Josh's bedroom, which is bigger than most studio apartments, and opens the blinds. She then comes around the corner because it is so big, it has a nook where the window is. And she sees the sheet pulled over his bed, has a huge blood stain on it. So she's obviously like, <gasps> so she goes and she pulls back the sheet to reveal a clothed body with a bloody stump where the left hand used to be. And Josh's motorcycle helmet is still on the body. So she removes it to reveal a face with blood all over the mouth. And then she's like, ah, and it looks almost like they've been eating like flesh or something because their mouth is all bloody. And you know, like mm -hmm. if you were like chomping down anyway, the young man is dead, but it's not her son. <gasps> it's Whoa. somebody else. And then we have the credits. Do, 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 yeah. titles, la, 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 la. So as I mentioned, Pierce County includes Tacoma and Mount Rainier National Park and is the second most populous county in Washington behind King County, which includes Seattle, which it borders to the north. Mm -hmm. so yep, I've been to that Pierce is King County to the north of Pierce County. So. Yes. Yeah. And then Snohomish County. And then I think it's Skagit is north of that. Yeah, I don't remember. But yeah. yeah. I didn't find out King County currently in 2022 is the 13th most populous county in the United States, which seems amazing. And Pierce County is the 60th. Nice. So, yeah. yeah. I also was like, it was snowy and stuff, and I realized it was January, but that's really rare here. So it was just like kind of there was like snow oh. over the roofs. And yeah, because stuff. there is a little bit of snow later. Yeah. Well, when we first see the there's like snow on the ground, too, when we first see. Yeah. The, yeah. The place. Yeah. But so. I mean, it does happen. It's not impossible. It's just it's rare. You know, it seems weird that it wouldn't snow there. But I guess because the the elevation you guys are down in. because Yeah, the, it's just yeah, it snows in Washington like yeah. after after a certain elevation. It's just usually not down at sea level or where most of the yeah. cities are. 
Yeah, you guys got all that water right there. So yeah, yeah, we just get a lot of rain. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like we, you know, like just water, water too. Like you know, bay, lakes, whatever that area is called. I can't remember the name now at the moment. So you know, Puget Sound and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And bias alert: I already do not give any kind of fucks about any of these characters. If this is the energy spot and it's brought to his Night Stalker, which was more Millennium than Kolchak, the Night Stalker, it's no wonder it was canceled after six episodes, despite having the next four episodes already completed and ready to air. And they were like, nope, not going to show them. So buckle in, people. The rants have entered the premium feed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is just not a great episode for Spotnitz. I know he can do good things, so I don't. I'm not going to hold it against him, but I'll just let you know I don't think it's great. I also don't give a crap. I get that Josh is supposed to be this disaffected teenager and he's mad at his father for reasons we will learn later. Mm-hmm. So his behavior kind of makes sense, but like, I don't know. Like, he's not even, if my son was acting like that, I'd be like, you know what? Maybe we don't need to have this birthday party. Like, well, what even when, when we first see him, his father isn't even there yet. So he's, yeah, just and he's in just, that way just because. And I get it, teenager moody, but geez, come on. At least smile for your little Also, his voice. Oh, 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 my God. Like, go through puberty already, dude, because you need to get that voice <laughs> gone. Guy. Well, he can't control that. <laughs> but yeah, I just, it's just kind of like, okay. And I, yeah, we get it. People in the suburbs, dead-eyed, uninterested, bored. Like, sure, got it. Understood. I get where you're going with this. Yeah. You guys may guess how this is going to end anyway. Yeah. So. <laughs> this may not be our favorite episode of Millennium. I'm just going to guess. Yeah. So then we come back and we have our epigraph, per usual. But know ye for certain, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city. Jeremiah 26, 13. So from the King James Version, but know ye for certain that if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth, the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. So. Of the selected text that they use, because obviously they cut a little bit out and they don't use the back end, there are actually several translations that match this. So King James Version, most common. That's why I picked it. Gotcha. And I could see why you would trim this. It is, for, for a single verse, this is really long. It is, yeah. Normally something this long would actually be like Jeremiah 26, 15 through 16 or 17 or something. So this is a single verse and it is pretty long, so I can see why they cut it. So with the exception of the that if ye put me to death, it actually all would work for this episode. So but I can see why they want to cut it because you only put so much on screen at a time. Yeah. Frank Black pulls up to the gates of Vista Verde Estates in his red Jeep Cherokee and the gate attendant tries to ask his business. But Sheriff Gerlich is beyond the gate and kind of okays him, gets him in. So the gates open and Frank drives into the community. So then we see that Frank has gotten into Gerlich's car and is riding shotgun. And Gerlich says he's unsure how Frank can help them. Frank explains his expertise and that he works for the Millennium Group. Frank saw the report on the news and he thinks the group's resources could help resolve the case quickly. Gerlich says this has gotten the community rattled. They have walls around all three square miles, 24-hour security, everything someone can do to stay safe. Frank asks if there's any connection between the dead boy and the one missing now. Gerlich says they lived three blocks from each other. So Frank looks through the file. The dead boy's name was Kirk Orlando. 
He was kidnapped three days ago walking home from a basketball game. Also in the file is $8 worth of confetti, so like $8 bills all torn up, that Kirk Orlando's father found in the mailbox the day after his son disappeared. We also learned that the community wasn't aware of Kirk's abduction because the family asked that Gerlich keep it quiet. Gerlich says by doing so, he made Josh Comstock a sitting duck for that son of a bitch. Ooh. Yeah. At the morgue, Kirk Orlando's body is laid out and Gerlich introduces Frank to John Tassini, the county coroner. Cause of death appears to have been from blood loss. Both of Kirk's hands were crudely cut off, possibly by garden tools. Frank looks at a wound near his clavicle. Tassini says there's a similar one on his abdomen. And then Frank has flashes of old man Josh being attacked, and he says it's a cattle prod. He uses it to subdue his victims. Frank says he didn't kill him immediately after the kidnapping. Tassini says he places the time of death within the last 24 hours. Gerlich says that means he kept him alive for 48. Mm. Frank looks at the victim and says there's something else. Tassini says he found blood in the mouth and stomach, approximately four ounces. And then Frank sees flashes of old man Kirk strung up by his wrist with blood running down his face. Frank says, human blood. Gerlich is like, oh, did he make him drink his own blood? And Frank says, no, someone else's. Tassini says he hasn't been able to verify that yet. Frank asks for a copy of the report when it's done. He has someone he'd like to run it by. Ooh, mm, blood drinking stuff going on. Yeah, it's a making little... vampires. I mean, I, I wish they were making vampires. I don't know why you'd waste the blood on someone that then you're going to chop their hands off. Yeah, it seems kind of useless. Oh, God. Oh, I just had a really bad flash of Nikki from the Vampire Chronicles. And now I... Yeah, it's just really depressing. <laughs> anyway, speaking of vampires with their hands cut off, God, I just I had totally blocked that out and now it just came flooding back. Mm-hmm. Oh, that poor guy. All right. Anyway, we're not talking about that today. So vampires <laughs> can't regenerate. I don't I don't think he could regenerate his hands. I don't I don't oh, think that happened. Okay. Hmm. It's pretty right. awful. He's the violinist guy, and then yeah, oh. not having his hands is was not. I mean, whether or not you're a violinist, not having your hands, <laughs> it's not great. I, I know, but it's particularly cruel. I'm just saying. Anyway, just man, I, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> just thought about it now. Sorry Yay. for the trauma. I apologize. <laughs> Sorry. Random Vampire Chronicle shit that's rattling around my brain and just suddenly pops up <laughs> like a little jack in the box. I'm like, whoa, where have I heard of that? Oh, yeah. God damn it. All right. I mean, if you're going to make people drink blood, we're going to say vampires. I mean, so. it's going to come up at some point for yeah. sure. So, yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So, Tassini leaves, and Gerlich says they're running checks on all the support staff guards, delivery drivers, anyone with access to the community. Frank says they're not going to want to believe it. They believe they've created a safety bubble for themselves from the world. They're not going to accept it's someone inside, one of them. Gerlich is incredulous. He says most of the residents are professionals. Frank says the killer took them brazenly in open areas. He knows the area and feels comfortable. He sees the victims as corrupt and damaged, and his mutilations want everyone to see them as the same. Frank says the kidnapper is trying to tell them something, and he's not going to stop killing until they are able to receive and understand the message he's trying to communicate. Oh, dear. 
because killers are always trying to give you clues like the riddler kind of yeah they're always yeah. trying to leave messages both for the authorities and for their victims there's a lot of like yeah. passive aggression going on in this show with killers yeah the coroner john tassini is played by andrew johnston who played lieutenant colonel robert budahas in season one episode two deep throat of the x-files and he also played special agent barrett weiss in season two episode 16 and 17 Colony and Endgame. Okay. He will be in one more episode of The X-Files as an unnamed medical examiner toward the end of season four. Probably not the same guy, but we can imagine it if we want to. Yeah. And then (laughs) as a school principal in season three of Millennium, taking us back to the season one, season three pattern that was broken last episode by John Piper Ferguson, who it turns out was also in three episodes of Spotnitz's Night Stalker. And was also in six of the 111 episodes of Burn Notice, which is where Tori recognized Jeffrey Donovan, who was also in that same last episode, The Wild and the Innocent. So sometimes oh. the data is on delay, but it, we get to it eventually. <laughs> so I honestly did not look at John Piper Ferguson's IMDb. I was just like looking at when he was on stuff that was X-Files related because he had several. So it was like, that's enough. But, yeah. yeah oh totally well sometimes they have so many credits that it's like you just get tired of scrolling you're like i don't care what else you were in i'm too tired of looking at imdb pages yeah but so yeah so there makes a connection there that we made especially because i was not aware of the burn notice thing so like i would not have made that connection because you brought that up like live in the episode so and then i went back and was like oh shit he was in that too so, yeah. yeah with the dude who beat the crap out of him with a tire iron so yeah anyway then it's dark and someone wearing dark canvas sneakers with white trim and laces is walking through a building. And there are sounds similar to like if like if, like if you were visiting an aquarium or had maybe a super huge aquarium or something like definitely like water noises. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the person opens a cooler and removes a bag of blood from the icy water inside. And it's actually like an IV bag. It's got like little, all the little connectors on it and everything. But they just take a pair of shears and whoop, cut the corner off and blood oozes out. It's all kind of congealy because it's super cold. Ugh, gross. And he approaches Josh Comstock, who is strung up by his wrist and crying, begging not to be hurt. And then they pour the blood down Josh's screaming throat. <gasps> Which I don't understand because this is going to happen a couple times. Sorry, a little bit spoilery here. But like everyone's crying, like, don't kill me. Don't hurt me. And then they put their head up like to cry to heaven. And then the dude pours the blood down their mouth. And I'm like, why are you doing that? I had thought maybe he was reaching around and grabbing them like by the back, like their hair and pulling their head back. But the way the scene is set up, he's standing behind a shop light that has like the shade on the back so they can't see his face. But then he's pouring the blood with his left hand. And to do that, he would have to like reach around, grab the back of their head and then reach with the other hand and pour the blood in their mouth while still standing behind this shop light that is a few feet away. And I'm like, you can't do that. Yeah, no, he's not. So they're just putting their head up and then complaining because they're drinking blood. Like, put your head back down. Like, if you don't want to blood yeah. put your head down. I know. And you know, the but... first time I was kind of like, wow, that's convenient that he, like, looked up and opened his mouth. That worked out really well. But then yeah, the second but... time I was like, um, why is the kid like, yeah. doing that again? Like, it's a little, yeah, it's a little. Yeah, it is. unless the dude is like, Mr. Fantastic, like he can't do that. His arms aren't would not be long enough. So maybe he is. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. So so then it's the Vista Verde Estates Community Association meeting, and it's eight fourteen p.m. Same day we assume. 
Tom Comstock is pouring a glass of water at the meeting. And a woman says that everyone feels for Tom and Linda Comstock, but they all want to know is being done to protect their families. The chairman, Edward Peaty, says the board has agreed to move curfew to sundown and to increase security controls. And the sheriff has assured him that everything that can be done is being done. And as he says that, Sheriff Gerlich and Frank Black enter. Comments are made in the crowd like, oh, and someone's like, better late than never. You know, that kind of <laughs> stuff, because, you know, they're not happy with the sheriff, apparently. And then as the meeting kind of grows louder, Petey stands up and says, one child is dead. Another is missing. And he says that some of them know too well the pain of losing a child. And he focuses gaze on someone else in the meeting who will learn is Adam Burke, who looks up and looks kind of pained, like mm -hmm. maybe he lost a child. Petey continues that he hoped this tragedy could bring them together rather than tear them apart. And then another man, Bob Birkenbuehl, stands up and says it's too late for that now. They all moved here to protect their families for nothing. He also accuses the sheriff of withholding information. And Gerlich is like, well, what do you want to know? And Birkenbuehl asks what he's doing to find this monster and if they have any suspects. And Gerlich says no. And then he introduces Frank Black. So Frank lays it all out. The killer is between 35 and 45 years old. He drives a late model car, probably a minivan or a sport utility vehicle. His parents were probably divorced when he was a child. If he's married, his wife doesn't know anything about the crimes he's committing. And then Gerlich adds, in all likelihood, the killer lives here in the community. And of course, they don't want to hear any of that. Mm -mm. And one man doesn't seem to understand the concept of narrowing down suspects. So it's like, that description fits half the men in this room. <laughs> Which, I mean, okay, so half the men aren't guilty, right? Yay, we narrowed it down. <laughs> but the woman from before asks, like, well, what does he want? And Frank looks around at the faces of the men who are looking back at him. He's kind of probably scanning the crowd to see if there's some telltale reactions, you know. And then he says, he doesn't want anything. He's insane. <laughs> and the music's all, dun-dun, dun-dun. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And almost certainly that is a ploy to get the killer upset, right? Because he obviously oh, does yeah, want obviously. something. So. Yeah. Yeah, Frank Black wouldn't say that. He doesn't want anything. He just earlier said he's trying to send a message. So, yeah. Yeah. So, in the pouring rain, the Comstocks drive home in their minivan, and they are silent. So, Tom finally asks if his wife wants to talk about it. She doesn't. He says he knows she didn't want him to have that motorcycle. She's like, it's not about the motorcycle. It's about you abandoning your family. And then as the van pulls into the driveway and the headlights hit the home, they see Josh's motorcycle is parked on the walkway near the entrance. <gasps> so they run inside the dark house and they're searching for Josh and calling his name. And so they look all over and then they run upstairs and they go to his room, but he's not in his room. And then in their bedroom, we see that the numbers 331 are smeared on the sheets in blood. Oh, yeah. Gross. Yeah, and just a note here for careful viewers, because they are making an effort here to provide certain visuals, which I honestly find kind of embarrassing. As Tom Comstock is running down the hall looking for Josh, we can see that he is wearing dark canvas sneakers with white trim and laces. <gasps> and of course, they were driving a dark minivan home. Right. <gasps> oh. Also, the unnamed woman in the meeting was played by Karen Canoel, who played Madame Zelma. In season three, episode four, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, and Mrs. Peacock in season four, episode two, Home on the X Files. She will appear one more time in both the X Files and in Millennium. 
She will be in 2018 season 11 of the X-Files. So going to be a while. Yeah. And wait for it. Wait for it. Season three of Millennium. Nice. She's also on Twitter and she was really enthusiastic about the opening of the new X-Files Museum, too. So I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, yeah. I hang out on Twitter a lot. I don't know. (laughs) So then it's the Comstock residence and it's 11.02 p.m. Tom Comstock is sitting at a table with Frank and police are milling around and we see Linda Comstock is in another room and she's sitting in a chair crying. Tom asks, why them? Why not the Van Horns across the street or the Trimbles? Frank says the killer knows him. He chose his son for a reason. Frank asks him about the number 331. After a moment, he admits that's the room number at the hotel where he's been meeting a woman twice a week. Three weeks ago, Josh saw him leaving the hotel with her and they had a huge fight, but he hasn't told his wife or anyone else. Frank says he needs to tell her. Comstock's like, I know, but I don't know if I can put this on her right now because obviously she's already dealing with a lot. But anyway, yeah, he needs to fess up. Yeah. So then we're at the Birkenbuehl residence and it's 1148 p.m. Bob Birkenbuehl is arguing with his son, Charlie, about turning off the television and going to bed because it's late. The TV's loud. So the young man turns off the TV and goes to his room. And when he gets in there, he notices his windows open. So he stands in front of it and he's going to close it. But then a gloved hand comes through and hits him and a cattle prod zaps him in the abdomen and he falls to the floor. And the assailant enters the room through the window and he's wearing dark canvas sneakers with white trim and laces. <gasps> Whoa. Yeah. It seems like we're supposed to be paying attention to that, I'm thinking. Yeah, it does seem like something we're supposed to notice since it seems to be that what's focused on about the killer. Yeah. So then, Burke and Buell residence, January 21st. 9.02 a.m. So we didn't go anywhere, but some time has passed. Frank is looking at the open window from inside the bedroom as the CSI team looks around for any possible evidence. And then Gerlach enters and tells Frank there's someone outside who says they're there to meet him. And Frank is like, Cheryl Andrews, she's a pathologist with the group. So Gerlach is like, okay, you guys can let her in. So she comes in and she's like, wow, Frank's security here is excellent. I was stopped twice just trying to get here. So, uh, yeah, that's a little racism going on. Yeah. But like intentionally, like it was made to like point that out, you know? Yeah. Need a community, all white people, black woman is coming in. Like, who's she's going to get stopped by security so. several times. Yeah. It's supposed to, like, I think this whole episode, the point is to sort of pan the suburbs and like the safety of gated suburban communities yeah. that are also generally filled with rich white people who can afford to live in 3,000 square foot McMansions with three car garages. Yeah. I also have to say, I might as well just say it right now, her hair is amazing in this episode. It is yeah. gorgeous. She wow. looks really good. I was happy to see her. I'm always happy to have CCH Founder on my screen, but she she really brings an energy that I think is needed on the show. So especially yeah. this episode, I think it helped. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's like, man, I feel like, I feel bad that she's in this one. So. I know. I hope she, <laughs> she needs to be in some better ones, but she just lifted up a little bit at yeah. least. So there's that. Yeah. 
So she hands him a report and then tells him the blood found in the first victim's stomach was from a white male, was A positive, and it's the same as the blood that was used to write the numbers on the Comstock's bed. And Frank is kind of quiet, and she's like, Frank? And then he says that he tried to provoke the killer last night at the meeting with half-truths in order to draw him out, to make him give them another message. And then she's like, but he just took another victim. And then she's like, this was planned. Like, you didn't do this. You did not provoke him to do this. You just didn't interrupt his pattern. So Frank was feeling a little guilty. So. Yeah. I thought that was nice, too, because she, like, immediately reassures him that it's not his fault. She's like, no, this guy was going to do it regardless. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. My cat has very strong opinions about this episode. Not about the fact that I'm in the middle of moving, which cats love. And so that's not throwing him off yeah. at all. But yeah, so we may have a guest appearance. Yeah, I apologize if he's in the background in this episode. I don't know that I can make him stop. I've tried everything that I normally try, and he's just not into it. Yeah, we've taken a couple breaks already, but yeah, I think we're just gonna we're just gonna roll through. So enjoy the kitties. Enjoy walk in the background. Um and now he'll probably be quiet that we mentioned it but yeah he usually just likes to get name checked i think last time we name checked him and then he was quiet the whole time then he goes and, so and sits I, in the window and yeah stares outside so then i cut it out lock so that's what you're gonna get so be careful I know. this whole section might get yeah cut he's out. heading we'll for the out. window now so maybe oh no he's going to yeah. the box all right we'll see we'll see little kitty cam to go with the podcast we can do video <laughs> podcast now but instead of us it'll just be like lock like walking around the apartment doing stuff <laughs> It's yeah. like those people on Twitch that have the camera set up for their cat or dog. And I'm like, yeah, that if I was ever on Twitch, that would be me. Yeah. So anyway, Cheryl Andrews reassures Frank that it wasn't his fault. And then Gerlich says, well, why didn't he leave another message? And Frank doesn't answer, but then says, maybe he did. And he walks towards a fish aquarium in the room. All the fish in the tank are dead. Aw. Yep. And Andrew's like, I'll get the water analyzed. And then Frank asks about any connection between Charlie Birkenbuehl and Josh Comstock. And then Gerlich is like going through the report. And then they find out they're both on the same swim team. Oh, well, that's a connection. Yeah. So at 10.10 a.m., according to a visible clock, in an extremely fancy resort-level, cedar-lined indoor, Olympic-sized high school pool and spa, which is probably Mm. funded by the tax dollars of McMansionville over there, Frank and Gerlich speak to the swim coach, Adam Burke. He asks them if they've had any luck finding the guy. Frank says no, but they're hoping he can help. Burke says he'll do whatever he can. And he's kind of anxious during this scene. You know, he's, he's a little bit on edge. And he says that Josh and Charlie were outstanding kids. Frank asks if there's been anyone taking an unusual interest or anyone without a child that regularly attends swim meets, but Burke doesn't think so. Gerlich asks if he noticed any unusual behavior recently, and Burke says no, but he knew that Josh had been having difficulties at home with his father. Frank thanks him and they start to leave. Burke tells Frank to call him if there's anything else he can do. He's very anxious to find both of the kids safe and sound. So as they leave, Frank asks Gerlich how well he knows Burke. And Gerlich says he's lived there a couple of years and the kids like him. Frank says he's labile and on some kind of anxiolytic medication. Gerlich says he's had it rough lately. He got divorced a year ago and his eight-year-old son Carl was killed by a hit-and-run driver outside the gates of the community six months ago. 
And Frank's like, they never found the driver. And Gerlich confirms that. Frank says the funeral for the first victim is this afternoon. He wants to be there because the kidnapper may attend. Gerlich asks how he'll know if it's him. And Frank says he won't. But if he is, he wants the killer to see him and know that he's watching. So at the funeral, Frank observes the attendees and he sees flashes of them as very old people. And the priest has like brown liquid coming out of his mouth, which I that I did not get. I can only take that as religious commentary for some reason. because That is obviously supposed to be like shit, not blood coming out of his mouth. Like blood would make more sense given the episode. Shit makes zero sense unless the priest is the kidnapper. And so maybe he's like talking shit. But anyway, given the religious overtones of the series, I don't understand why this is in there. I don't. I think because it's supposed to be the killer's vision. Right. And he thinks all the stuff that the priest is saying is bullshit. Okay, I get. I don't know why they had to. Yeah, I don't. It's not necessary. They do a lot of stuff in here that I don't know why they did it. So, yeah, it's night and Frank pulls up to the yellow house. So he's back in Seattle. And as he enters, we see a vehicle pull up in the foreground. Inside, Catherine walks past the living room and sees Frank looking out the windows. And he's like, I got a strange feeling someone followed me home. And she's like, well, did someone? And he's like, no, 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 no. Close your damn blinds. I know. I thought the same thing. Like, they have all their windows wide open. And I'm just like, and then she's like, you want to go to bed? I'm like, close your curtains it's dark. first. She's in, she's in her robe walking around like, oh, my God. Like, close your blinds. Jeez. Especially because what's going to happen next? They're talking about the case. And he says, like, this kind of has a feel like an old one that I used to have. And they're talking about it. And fucking Jack Meredith shows up and he's banging on the window, scares <laughs> everybody, viewers and Frank and Catherine. And then he's all like, oh, waving at them through the window. Frank opens the door and Jack comes around and is like, oh, I hope I'm not disturbing you. I saw you were up and didn't want to risk waking the little one by ringing the bell. Like, ugh. Frank is like, that's okay. And asks if he needs anything instead of telling him to fuck off. Then Jack is like, oh, and like he remembers why he was banging on the window. And he hands Frank an envelope and says, Frank's name is on the label. And he's like, someone knocked on my door and left it here. And I figured they got the wrong house. I'm like, yeah, no shit, Jack. It says Frank Black on it. Wrong house. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love how much you hate Jack Meredith. I don't God, know I why, hate but Jack Meredith it so amuses much. me so much. <laughs> like, I, I think he's a pretty harmless old man. Like, he's nosy. He's definitely a busybody, but I don't think he's like a bad person. But you're just I like, hate oh, him. I hate guy. him. I hate him. <laughs> so Frank asked Jack if he saw who left it. And he's like, no, they ran off, but I thought it might be important. And so they're like, okay, thanks. Good night. And just close the door on him. He's like, oh, okay. Like, oh, oh. So Frank opens it and pulls out a metallic green color card numbered 528. Weird. Which I know what it was immediately. Frank doesn't seem to, which is another yeah, thing I, I have an too. issue with. It's, but <laughs> it's an HOA member who wants them to paint their house. They're tired no, it's of from the a unsightly car. It's yellow. A car. It's a it's a, it's a, it's a color card for a car. That's why it's metallic green. It's got metallic flake on it. It's a car. Like if you're out cars, they show this to you. What color would you like your vehicle in, sir? Oh, why doesn't Frank know that? He doesn't, though. It takes him a while. I'm like, yeah. why, why, why? Oh, God, Jack Meredith made me so angry. Like, this this episode, on top of everything else, this episode just had to have Jack Meredith in it. Just like, <laughs> mm, God. Hitting oh. all Nick's rage buttons. <laughs> Man, I swear. I hate him so much. I hate him so much. Oh, man. Anyway. So then we're at Vista Verde Estates, and it's 11.48 p.m. 
and Bob Birkenbuehl and Tom Comstock are sitting in a dark SUV. And Birkenbuehl says, the coach's lights are still on. Hmm. Suspicious. Like, yeah, they're totally like sussing people out, right? Mm-hmm. And he says that some of the boys saw the police questioning him, which obviously police only talk to you if you're guilty. We all know that. Mm-hmm. So Comstock shakes his head and is like, so what? The man lost his own son. But Birkenbuehl points out that you never know what people are capable of. Mm-hmm. And then Edward Peaty pulls up in a dark pickup. He hasn't seen anything, so he's going to head over to the east wall. He tells them he has his cell phone if they need anything. And then Birkenbuehl says, we're fine. It's cool. So Petey pulls away. Comstock says he doesn't know what will happen if they find the guy. And then he pulls out a gun. Because that's a good thing to have on hand. That's not going to go wrong at all. I mean, you know, you shoot him in the leg. <laughs> Birkenbuehl asks him if he plans to shoot the guy. Comstock puts the gun back in his pocket and says he doesn't know. But then a dark minivan pulls up and it parks near Burke's house. The driver gets out and heads towards the fence and he's like wearing black clothes and stuff. So they like race mm-hmm. over and Birkenbill gets out of the car and pursues him on foot and Comstock speeds away, presumably to get to like the other side or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Birkenbill chases the person through these woods that are behind the home. I'm going to guess that this is a community that's laid out in a circular fashion with like a green area in the middle or something. That's my... Yeah, because they've got like these open fields where you can like do donuts on your dirt bike and then like big woods that are and the wood is like fenced in because like he goes over a fence and there's woods yeah. and then when he leaves the wood, he goes over another fence. So might be some kind yeah. of mini green belt situation or something. But something, anyway, yeah. <laughs> on the opposite side, Comstock races down the road along the fence that edges the woods and the person hops the fence and runs into the road. Comstock slams on the brakes. And we see that he's wearing dark canvas sneakers with white trim and laces. <gasps> but he hits the person. And so he jumps out with his gun drawn and Birkenbuehl approaches. And we see that the person in the road is just a teenage kid. Oh, my gosh. What? And it's a commercial. Some teenage kid is killing other teenage kids. Maybe. Teenage on teenage crime. Well, he's he's trying to build his vampire army, so. Oh, oh, he's like a super old dude. He just looks like a teenager. Yeah, you know, he's probably in his hundreds and he's trying to like recruit a, an army of teenage vampires because that's how vampires present in the Pacific Northwest as teenagers. And then they go to high school. So, oh, yeah. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> Frighteningly <laughs> as that is. Yeah, okay. You're making a lot of sense, Tori. I don't like it, but you're making a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, that's the only possible explanation anyway. I know if I was a vampire lived forever, I would love to hang out in high school. Oh, my God. Yeah. Talk about worst case scenario. What are you going to do with your eternity? I'm going to go to math class. <laughs> I go Why? to high school. Why? Why would you torture yourself that way? Anyway. I mean, at least become a cop and then go to high school and you'd be like 21 Jump Street vampires or something. But, <laughs> you know, whatever. So then Frank is at the scene and Gerlich tells him the kid's name is Richard Draper. He was meeting his girlfriend and he didn't want to get caught violating the curfew. He now has a concussion and some abrasions, but the medics say he should be fine. Birkenbuehl and Comstock were on neighborhood patrol. He tells Frank that Birkenbuehl already left, but Comstock is pretty shaky. And Gerlich said he'd give him a ride home. So Frank offers to take him. Yeah. Frank was at home in Seattle dealing with 
Jack Meredith. Uh-huh. But Seattle Tacoma is only about 35 to 40 miles, according to Google Maps. And Tori, you would probably know this better than I would. But according to mm-hmm. Google Maps, it's about 35 to 40 minutes away. Yeah. Quicker at night when there's no traffic, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, Pierce County is kind of big. So there are areas of it where you would have like residential stuff that could be like up to 90 minutes away. Mm-hmm. But even all that, like even it was Tacoma, like even 30 minutes seems to be pushing believability in this scene. Because when you factor in like he's got to be notified. And then, like, it looks like they're just, like, you know, they're just cleaning up. I mean, they wouldn't be spending that much time at the scene. I think they just forgot where Frank was. And then Possibly. there, Or they just, like so. everyone else, thinks that anything in Washington is, like, 10 minutes from Seattle. Because it's obviously not. But Yeah, maybe. This area know. felt more puyallup to me than, like, Tacoma. But, I mean, it could be a, a suburb of Tacoma. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, even that's only, like, 45 minutes away, though. According yeah. To I mean, it's not so. super far. But it's far enough that, like... By the time Frank gets in his car, drives all the way there, like it doesn't seem like they would still be hanging out. Yeah, because they're not he's not gonna know about it till the police are already on site. Right. And then he's gotta like get in, even if he's like immediately like just hops up and jumps in and takes off, still, yeah. Anyway. Eh. So as Frank is driving Comstock home, Comstock says that he doesn't even know why he's going home. He can't sleep and the house is empty told his wife about his affair and she left him that morning and of course his kid's gone so he's got this big old giant house i mean he had a big old giant house with three people in it, it was probably feeling pretty empty then too but anyway frank mentions the paint swatch and asks if it means anything to him and comstock says no should it and frank says he believes the kidnapper sent it to him as a message but he doesn't know what it means right now so they get to the comstock home and frank is like have you given keys to your house to anybody and comstock is like no why and Frank's like, I just saw someone inside. So huh. they all yeah. enter the house and they're, you know, carefully looking around because it's all dark and no one has it. Well, I guess Comstock maybe has a gun unless the cops took it from him. And doesn't seem like anybody's inside. But then they find Josh just sitting there and he's likely in shock and he's got blood all over his mouth. Ew. So, yep. Yeah. Still looks like a douchebag. But anyway, <laughs> here I am dunking on a 16 year old. But hey, I'm going to. So there you go. So then it's the Comstock residence and it's January 22nd and it's 3.12 a.m. Cheryl Andrews is examining Josh and Gerlich says there's no signs of forced entry. The kidnapper probably used Josh's keys to get inside. Andrews says that he's in shock. He's got lowered body temperature, dilated pupils, and he has wounds that would indicate use of the cattle prod. Frank has a flash of Josh screaming while blood is being poured down his throat. And it's normal Josh, not old man Josh, so... And Frank brings up the forced consumption of blood. And Andrew says that it would appear so. So it mm-hmm. happened with him, too. Because not everybody can see Frank's visions. You know, only we can and Frank. So <laughs> yeah, only us and Frank can see yeah. his psychic visions or non-psychic visions. Yeah, so we find out that Tom Comstock is on the phone with his wife. And she's going to meet him at the hospital. And then Gerlach is like, I want to question Josh. And Andrew's like, why? He's not going to be able to tell you anything about the kidnapper. And Frank says he wouldn't have been returned if he could. So Gerlich mm-hmm. says that making them drink blood doesn't make sense either. That's true. Yeah, point. So, yeah. Yeah. But Frank says the kidnapper sees himself as a holy figure and making them drink his blood is a purifying act. So Frank's making some connections here saying that the blood must be the dude's blood, not just random people's blood or someone else's. I kind of was thinking maybe it was like the previous victims, although then you have that problem of the first victim whose blood are they drinking but anyway i guess it's just the dude's blood <laughs> Gerlich asks if he's gonna purify charlie burke and buell too 
And Frank says the first victim was killed and Josh wasn't. There's a reason for that. And they just haven't been able to make the connection yet. Oh, so frustrating. So then we see that Charlie Birkenbuehl is strung up by his wrists, similar to the others. And he's in a dark room and there are sounds of water gurgling and flowing. Someone enters the room and Charlie begins crying and shouting for help. And the man says, God did not make death. He doesn't rejoice in the destruction of the living, but his justice is undying. And as he says it, he removes the blood bag and he just snips it with the scissors and blood just starts mm-hmm. to go into the wine. I mean, it's pretty sloppy. But then yeah. he pours it down Charlie's throat because Charlie also conveniently tilts his head up and cries out. And he yeah. can just pour the blood right in his mouth. So that, I guess, works out. Yay. Yep. And then Frank is in his basement office and he has a new email. It's from Cheryl Andrews and it has the report from the Pierce County Sheriff's Office on the death of Carl Burke. It happened on November 6th, 1996, which was not six months ago. If this is January, it's only like three months ago. Mm-hmm. And it happened at 10.30 p.m. So that kid was out late riding his bike around in November when yeah, it was cold something. and yeah. dark. Yeah. yeah, he's only eight. And it also lets us know that Vista Verde Estates is, in fact, in Tacoma. Yep. So it's not in Puyallup. It does. I didn't check the address to see if it was real or not. I was like, I probably not. Don't yeah. care, honestly. So his phone rings and it's Cheryl Andrews. Because everyone in the Millennium Group sends you stuff via email and then immediately calls you to see if you got it. Yeah. So. Well, to be fair, this is the 90s where people weren't like checking their email and didn't have it on their phone. It wasn't like constant. So if you sent someone something and it was urgent, you probably would call them to be like, Hey, I sent you an email. Maybe you should log into your AOL account for one of your 25 hours this week and check it. (laughs) Things have changed a lot. Anyway, we learned that the substance from the fish tank was scotch, probably single malt. There were no prints from the paint swatch, but it is called forest green code number 528. It's a three-step enamel used in late model ML 750 minivans. Meanwhile, Frank is looking at the photos from Carl Burke's death. And we see that there's like a side rail and it has paint scrapes on it. Frank says that was the vehicle he was driving. And Andrew says, who? Frank says the hit and run driver that killed Coach Burke's son. And so she's like, is that what triggered the kidnapper's break? Frank says he thinks the kidnapper was deeply affected by it. It changed the way he saw people around him. He became outraged, disillusioned. Andrew says he wants to root out sin, expose hypocrisy. Frank says he's going to call Gerlich and they should meet at Birkenbuehl's house. They missed something. <gasps> and we get a clear shot of Frank's computer desktop here and it brings back the memories, man. The control strip. Wow. I haven't thought about the control strip in a long time. This is probably system 7.5, maybe 7.6 since it was released on January 7th, 1997. Don't know. We now know that Frank is using a PowerMax 7100 AV because he didn't rename his hard drive. His desktop icons include that drive, current work, backup, email, fax, millennium, printer, trash, recent work, and voicemail. Nice. So, yeah. So then we're at the Birkenbuehl residence and it's 10.56 p.m. Frank and Andrews arrive in Frank's Jeep. They pull it behind a green ML750 minivan. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Birkin Buell says he doesn't know what they're looking for. 
And Andrew says that of the three fathers, he's the only one not to have received a message from the kidnapper. And he's like, what about the dead fish? And Frank is like, that was meant for me, not you. So, okay. <laughs> Frank says they're overlooking something. And Burke and Buell asks if he knows what the kidnapper wants. And Frank says he wants Burke and Buell to confess. And Burke and Buell is like, well, I haven't done anything wrong. And Frank says the kidnapper believes he has. The sins of the fathers are being visited upon the sons. Tom Comstock's son was returned alive when he confessed to his sin. The first victim was killed when his father did not. He's warning Birkenbuehl to confess to save his son. Oh, I know. It's kind of like the judge a little bit, maybe. Yeah, a little bit like the judge. Yeah. 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 Andrews calls Franks over to see something. On the floor of Charlie Birkenbuehl's room is a Nerf football with initial CB, just like carved into it, like <laughs> heavy carved into it, man. I think that would, if they're so deep, I think it would actually affect the flow of the ball when you threw it, honestly. So Frank puts on some gloves and he picks it up. He says, this is not your son's ball. And Birkenbuehl is like, it has his initials, Charlie Birkenbuehl. And Frank says, the ball belonged to Carl Burke. <gasps> And then he asks Andrews if she has an evidence bag, and she does. And then he squeezes the ball over it, and it just blood oozes out of the ball. And oh, I know. It's so, so gross. <laughs> yeah, which reminds me of when I was in the sixth grade. We would play um, a game, which I'm not going to rename because we used a slur in the name, and so I'm not going to say it. But it was based like ball tag. And we would play in the rain and we would play uh, with a Nerf ball and yeah. you would get smacked with the ball and you just big old wet, like chunk on your body or on your face, big old mud splatter, just impression on your face. So, yeah, it's also where I broke my nose. So me and another kid came around the corner, not in that same kind of thing, but during playing that same game, because it was it, we, we had those, you know, in schools and they would have like the the additional buildings that were basically like little like trailers that they would build yeah. up to be classrooms off to the side. And so yeah. there were two and they had a little like alley in the middle. And so you could do like figure eights around the building and play. So that's where we would always play. And we both came around a corner one time and just crunched. And uh, yeah. Wow. Yep. Super cool. So fun time. We also used to play um, polo with the croquet sticks. Oh. And then after we broke them, because you would hit sticks together, and of course the hammers would go flying because the stick would crack, then we would tape the stick together, and we would play stick ball. So we were, you know, mother invention kind of thing. Like, oh, we broke the croquet mallets. Okay, now we can play stick ball with the handles. So yeah. <laughs> not with the balls, obviously. We had to play with, like, little wiffle balls or something. But, right, yeah. Yeah. Stick ball with a croquet ball would be crazy. Also, be sticks hard. would not last. No. Yeah. yeah. Enough of that, anyway. Back to the show. So then it's January 23rd at 11, 12 a.m. And Birkenbuehl agrees to be publicly arrested for the crime, but his lawyer tells Gerlich that he still claims his innocence. Anders asks Frank if he thinks this will work. He says if it doesn't, he doesn't know what will. So then neighbors watch as Birkenbuehl is put into his squad car and driven away. And they're like all standing on his lawn and shit too. Like just yeah. like, Dude, get off my lawn. What are you doing? Yeah. So Edward Petey asks what's going on, and the woman from the meeting says he's been arrested for the death of Coach Burke's son. <gasps> Petey walks back to his dark blue vehicle and removes his glasses. 
and the camera follows his dark canvas sneakers with white trim and laces. <gasps> Does everyone shop at the same store in this freaking neighborhood? What the hell? Yeah, I mean, pretty much they're all the same, right? Stepford shoes, you know. Jeez. Ah, Working Mule's lawyer is played by Fred Henderson, who played Agent Thompson in season one, episode 13, Beyond the Sea of the X-Files, and Special Agent Rich in season two, episode five, Dwayne Barry. Nice. He will appear in one more episode of Millennium, but he's going to appear in season two. Ruining it. Oh, broke your Ugh. pattern. Broke your pattern. Ah, people I'm trying to do something here and get it up. Anyway. Mm. So then we're at the Burke and Buell residence again. We spent a lot of time there. And at 7.18 p.m. And inside the darkened home, Burke and Buell is sitting at a table. Though so he's not in jail. He's at home again. And the police are inside the residence and Gerlich is there and Frank is there and Cheryl Andrews is there. And Andrews asked Frank if he has plan B. And he's like, you don't think he's going to take the bait? And she's like, if he is, he's pushing it. The other two kids are returned within 72 hours. Of course, one was dead, but still. And it's almost that time now. And then Gerlich's radio has a report of a man approaching the house. So they all go to the door and the doorbell rings. Gerlich answers as Adam Burke. He found a cassette tape in his mailbox and it is addressed to Bob Birkenbuehl. And he like looks at him in the house, which must be messed up because like all oh, the whole neighborhood thinks he was arrested. And then he's like, it's addressed to him. And he's like in his house. So they know he wasn't really arrested. Man. And like he's accused of killing your kid. Mm. Yeah, that would be a mess of situation. Mm. Yeah. So later they're playing the tape and it's Charlie Birkenbuehl. He relates the kidnapper says what he's done isn't enough. He says he's merciful, but he's just. And he says that for Charlie's sake, his father has to pay for what he's done. If a life was taken, then his life must be taken in return. <gasps> Bob Birkenbuehl is all crying, hearing his son's voice. He's like, oh, Dad, help. I'm sick. I need help. Please save me. Anyway, Frank is like, play it again. And Birkenbuehl is like, I can't listen to that again. And he's walking away. And then Frank tells him that they'll find his son. So, and then he just yeah. let him go. Yeah, which doesn't seem smart for several reasons, including the fact that he just heard this tape telling him what to do to get his son back. And then he's going off alone. Like, you should have someone with him. Yeah, there's lots of police in the house. Nobody could stay with him or at least yeah. you know, keep an eye on him. Not saying he's going to do anything or anything, but yeah, you never know. Yeah, no, I was immediately like, he's going to do exactly what the killer just told him to do. So... Yeah. Pretty so obvious. they re-listen to the tape several times and they're picking out the sounds and then Andrew says the echo suggests a large low ceiling room and then Frank hears something and they rewind a couple times they play it and he realizes what it is <gasps> what is it and then they're at the pool <gasps> the pool I guess that would account for all the water noise yeah because what Frank heard we'll find out he actually heard the diving board like it makes noise when people dive on it and so you could actually hear that. I thought they were going to hear like water noises too, but it's not the water noises. It's the diving board. And they're like, is there a room underneath the pool? Which seems strange to me. There would be a room underneath the pool, but I guess if you've got, you know, whatever. So they're trying to find the room and then they find it and they go in, but the light switch is dead. Doesn't work. So it's super dark in there. No light, obviously, because underground. Gerlich calls for Charlie. Andrew says they may have moved to another location, but Frank pulls a Fred Jones and says, we should split up. Mm-hmm. So, they do. Yeah. Yeah. So as they're searching, Andrew stumbles over something. 
it's the cooler with a blood bag in it. She calls for Frank and he tries to find her. She tells him to follow the sound of her voice. But unfortunately, Frank is not the only one with ears. Yeah. But then Andrews finds Charlie. So he's like strung up. And so she tries to help him. But the kidnapper finds her. She turns and Edward Petey zaps her with a cattle prod and she goes down. Wait, it's Edward Petey? Yeah, apparently. I'm so shocked after that last scene we saw with his glasses in the car. And yeah, shoes. or in the first scene, he's pouring blood and the silhouette totally matches his head. But anyway, yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. So then Frank arrives, but Petey still has the cattle prod. So Frank keeps his distance and he tells Petey that it's over. And Petey's like, I'm their only hope. Like Obi-Wan. Yeah. Frank has seen their fathers. They're all liars. They'll make the kids sick and corrupt just like themselves. And from the side, Gerlich tells Petey to drop it, and he pulls back the hammer on his pistol. And Petey says he tried to help them. Why was he the only one who cared about them? Gerlich tells him to drop his weapon and moves in. So Petey drops it, and Gerlich pushes him against the wall and cuffs him. Frank tells Gerlich to call for an ambulance, and he runs over to Andrews, and she's like, I'm all right, I'm all right. So he releases Charlie Birkenbuehl. Petey says, I saved him. I made his father pay the price for what he did. And Frank looks at him. Mm-hmm. So Frank and Gerlich enter the Birkenbuehl home and they ask where he is. And an officer tells him he's in the bedroom. So they enter and we can see that Birkenbuehl's legs are dangling in the foreground. So obviously we can guess what he did. Mm-hmm. And Frank sits on the bed and puts his head down. And Gerlich makes it very clear for the audience what the theme of this episode is, as he says, how could this happen here? Quote Carl Kolchek in the Night Stalker, wherever you may be, in the quiet of your home, in the safety of your bed, try to tell yourself it couldn't happen here. Now, I would not be surprised if that was intentional, because Frank Spotnitz uses Kolchek stuff a lot. And calls it an homage but yeah yeah i have thoughts about that that i probably don't want to get into because i'll just get angry so yeah i know he just shared stuff about mcgavin's 100th birthday and he seems to have really liked him and they work together a lot so yeah well i mean Darren mcgavin and carl kolchek are different people so that's true that's true i think you can i think you can yeah anyway, I don't, like i said i don't want to get into it so i'll just get mad totally fair so, totally fair yeah no i saw those tweets too and they actually made me angry um, just because the thread, because he did, he did the like, you know, Darren McGavin, Tyler's birthday, you know, respect. And that first he, he should have stopped there and then he did a thread. And I was like, and now you're just talking about how great you are and using him as a proxy. And I was not happy. So Aww, yeah. I thought he was just trying to share his contributions to the stuff that Spotnitz had worked on. Yeah, because he's, he's making it about himself. He's making it about himself. He should, he should have just stopped instead of making it about himself. So didn't like it anyway. I struggled with that myself when we did our episode about the Night Stalker for the birthday and for the anniversary. Um, we were originally going to put it on the premium feed and I decided that we shouldn't do that because then that seemed to be using that as a thing. And it, we put it out for free because I didn't want it to be about us. Yeah. So I just I just have feelings about when people do that. And I don't oh. think a lot of times people even realize they're doing that, but I think sometimes they do. And I don't yeah. like it. So. That's fair. I didn't like this episode either. So <laughs> I'm shocked. Speaking of, speaking of things I don't like, I got, there's just so much on this that I just don't like. What was the point of everyone looking old? Like, 
Is that supposed to be sickness and corruption? I mean, in a sense, yes, that's what getting old is, but not in the sense supposedly being used in this episode. And like, why were the kids in the opening? Like, like the kids in the opening, they were like corpses. They had like missing chunks of flesh. They were rotting. No one else is like that. Why did the priest have poop coming out of his mouth? We kind of talked about that a little bit. Like all these things could have had meaning, but then they didn't really seem to. They were just special effects because we needed to have some special effects. I don't understand. So. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think the whole episode, like I said, is supposed to be like a panning of the suburbs and, you know, kind of a, a satire slash, not really a satire, but like kind of like a takedown of like the security and safety people, particularly rich white people feel when they buy a house in a gated community and, you know, have their HOA and their neighborhood watch and, you know, how that doesn't necessarily protect you from corruption that's inside and can still grow inside. I get what he's trying to say. I just don't think it was in a very effective episode. Well, and also what he's trying to say is one of the themes of the show. We've gotten this already. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's the yellow house, right? Frank is doing right. the same thing with yellow house. Right. And it's we got, and we also got that same theme in wide open of like all the things we do to make ourselves safe. And they're not, helpful right they don't they don't do the job because you can't make yourself safe the world is always going to creep in i mean it's the mask of the red death basically is what it is Mm -hmm. it's just anyway and the episode had like some heavy cheats like pd wears glasses at all times except in the teaser and in the blood pouring scenes other than that he's always wearing his glasses they try to get around it being a cheat by having to remove them when we see that he's wearing the shoes but doesn't matter because his silhouette is obvious from the first blood scene because that scene happens and then we immediately meet him in the association meeting. And you're like, oh, that's the dude who was in the room that just poured blood on the kid. Even though he's got glasses. You don't need the glasses. Comstock wears similar glasses. They could have gone that route. They tried to a little bit with the van, the sneakers, and the hair kind of. Why didn't they embrace that? No. And then the thing with the sneakers and the minivans, it was just like, Catherine Black drives a dark blue minivan. Mrs. Bang drove a dark blue minivan in the world. They obviously have dark blue minivans that they use for production. And so everyone drives a dark blue minivan. And then they magically just like, oh, and this guy had a green one because we need to isolate Burke and Buell because make him the driver. Like, it's just weak, 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 weak. Oh, and then we got Jack Meredith. <laughs> Hate it. So I actually had a theory, but then it doesn't work because of all the old people vision. If they had dropped the old people vision stuff, they could have convincingly made Adam Burke be the man in the teaser. Like just breaking down because he's watching like the families and the kids playing because he lost his family, right? Right. And it would have been an organic and realistic red herring as opposed to all their contrived red herrings. I hated it. So, and yeah. then Burke and Buell, like he apparently, like they, it, was that a fake arrest or they just like let him go? Like they have evidence that he probably killed an eight year old kid while, you know, driving under influence. And then he tried to blame the kid's father for the kidnappings, which is unrelated to that. But still, like you get zero sympathy for the dude. And so the final scene is like, I don't care that he killed himself. Sorry. Yeah. It's awful to say that about someone, but like you don't. Like, because you, he, he doesn't give you any reason to feel sorry for him. So again, yeah, I don't know. This is what he's bringing. He needs to burn it with fire and throw it away the ashes because garbage. I don't like it. So yeah, I didn't really care about Burke and Buell. Like I did have that thought, like as soon as he leaves after he hears the tape, I'm like, yep, he's going to go kill himself. But like, I don't know. I agree with you. The episode was really contrived. A lot of it just it was boring which i think is mm-hmm. a bigger crime than just being nonsensical like i was just bored by it like i was telling you 
I couldn't even like I just watched it the other day and I like as we sat down to record I'm like wait which guy was the killer because I couldn't even remember because I just didn't care it didn't penetrate my brain like <laughs> it didn't sink in because it didn't matter because they're all the same right well and they I guess try that's... to play it both ways yeah they they try and give you all these hints where like it could be this person it yeah. could be this person and at the same time they intentionally work against some of those things that they could use to make it a mystery because they're trying to make it a mystery. Most episodes, we, we know who we see the killer's face, like in the teaser, if nothing else. This one, they tried to play it like a murder mystery, mm-hmm. and it was just awful. It was awful, especially because, like yeah. I said, like the first time we see him, you could actually, if you go back and look, you can kind of do it with when he first attacks Josh Comstock, too, like in the field, but that one's a little subtler. But when you get a nice hard silhouette of him, when he enters the room, when he's pouring the blood over Josh Comstock, and then the very next scene, you meet this guy you've never met before. And you're like, that's the same hair. That's exactly like he doesn't have glasses, but it's the same guy. And it's like, done. I know who the killer is. Like all this other stuff is baloney. So. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I mean, again, I get what they were doing. Like everyone could be guilty the suburbs aren't safe like you said it's just an ongoing theme of the show that no matter what you do to try and protect yourself and your family evil can still find you evil is all around us yeah um, and that's that's fine i just again i didn't like this episode either i thought it was boring i thought it was and you know the whole killer making them drink the blood i felt like that was just unnecessary i don't know i just it just felt like a lot of stuff going on for a very non-payoff well, seem like I'm. It almost seemed like the blood was because, and every episode hasn't had that, but that is like the whole religious, you know, apocalyptic thing is kind of like one of the themes of Millennium. Oh yeah, and it's almost like they were like, oh, we got to get that in here somewhere, and let's do that. So, and then we had it. We need we need Frank to see flashes, you know, and and a lot of times the flashes when we see flashes of him, we're getting weird vision stuff, like in you know, like in the second episode, right? We get like. Oh crap, is that a werewolf? Holy, what's going on? You know? And so it's like, well, we got to make the people look, we can't just see him being attacked. We got to see him being attacked. And oh, and he's an old man. Like, what? Yeah. And I, yeah, I think you're right that it's supposed to indicate like corruption and whatever. But yeah, it's just, it's all too much and it just doesn't come together well. And it's not an interesting episode. I didn't really care. Like you, I was like, I don't, I don't, we know the killers. What would have been interesting would have been. If instead of being an old person, when and again, we have to just just get rid of the whole like vision stuff in the opening teaser, right? Where he's like seeing all the people old and the kids is like zombies or whatever. Just like, you know, he's looking at the people and then he just stops and he cries. And you're like, what the hell is going on? He looks at the house. The house can totally go dark and have dark clouds. Cool. And then we cut to the birthday scene. Right. But then when Frank is having flashes and maybe even when the killer is having flashes, like when he's zapping Josh Comstock. Instead of it being old people, it's his father's face, right? Because he's paying for the crimes of his father. Make it be it that, like photo, you know, photoshopping the dude playing his father's face. I don't know, but whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I just, it's I just start so saving weird. all my A material because I gotta have something for the season wrap up if we do one. So. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm not saving stuff for that. Uh oh. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like. I mean, I guess you're cleansing the kids because you don't want them to grow up like their dads, but I don't know. It just, again, felt really convoluted. Like the killer's taking a long way to get where he wants to go. And that's 
fine. You don't have to be sane or logical about your murder, but it just didn't seem to work. Yeah. And I mean, if he's doing the like drink of my blood, I mean, I mean, he's not like cutting off pieces of his skin and feeding it to him too. So, you know, blood turns into wine, the flesh into bread. So, yeah. Three. You get a three. <laughs> weeds. Also, weeds. Why weeds? I don't understand weeds. You know what's funny is there was that show Weeds about the suburbs and the suburban woman who sells pot. Oh, so I don't, I don't understand. I guess he's like pruning weeds by making sure these kids don't become corrupt. I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Because he's... I shouldn't have to try and come up with reasons why you name stuff. So I mean, I to be fair, some episode titles just aren't titles are hard and sometimes they're not <laughs> good. So that's fine. I don't have a hard problem with that. I just yeah, I didn't like this. I was actually looking at my ratings. I gave the judge a five. That, mm-hmm. I, I need to lower that. I'm gonna you give that, this... you, you said that was before on one of our episodes. You're yeah, like, oh, I might I have just, you. Yeah, I think I was too nice to that one. Um, I think I'm gonna give this a four, which honestly is probably what I'll give the judge to okay. change that. Wow. But you I just been a lower rating than Tori on Millennium. Yeah, I just didn't love it. I didn't, you know, I mean it wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen, but it just was boring and like I just didn't care. And since I wasn't really invested, I was just kind of like, okay, I got it. Suburbs, not safe. People are evil. Even suburban dads can murder. Cool. Got it. Thanks. Like, I just... Because I think on every single episode, I have made mention of how, like, just like how good Lance Henriksen is. And this episode, I really can't even, like, I, he wasn't bad, but I also can't, like, pick out, like, something where, like, I was just like, damn, he's good. Like he was just there. And then like yeah. we had CCH Pounder and I'm kind of like, I feel bad she was in this episode. Yeah. I mean, I feel so. like she did a good job. I thought she brought some humanity. No, I don't think it. she did a bad job. It's just no, like, I, I feel know. like, like crap. Saying She's I only she in so many. Really Why job. you put her in this one? You know? Like I said, she definitely, I think she lifted this episode up a little bit by being there because she's so good. And because it just gave a little bit of like, you know, and again, it was more on that theme. We get it. We Like, I just feel like I was being hit over the head with this theme of like, gated communities and suburbs are not you know safe and like you know that you're not protecting yourself by buying a mcmansion in a gated community like i get it i understand it's not like i don't agree it's just that i felt like from the first shot it's just being hammered into my brain and like i don't need it hammered i get i get what you're doing you can be a little more subtle and it's kind of a retread of the judge and wide open like if you match those two together it's kind of that yeah yeah we got that we got it already we get it, Frank Spotnitch. You watched the series, okay? Write something original, please. Thank you. So, and I like Spotnitz a lot. I think he can do good things. I just don't think this was one of them. So, I mean, you know, Chris Carter only has like two settings apparently, like good and not good. There's no like in between. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know enough, Frank. I, I think this is, isn't this the only thing. Well, uh, maybe there was. Well. There's that two-parter when he first joins where they give Chris Carter the writing on one episode and they give him the writing on the second episode. But I think they both worked on both and they were just doing some kind of like credit thing on that one. I think this might be the first one where he is really like a solo writer. So who knows? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think it's his first credit as a solo writer, but I think this might maybe really be his first actual solo writing. And again, it's like the Files. They have story editors and that kind of business too. So yeah. Yeah. And as for having settings like either good or terrible, like same. I mean, to be fair, like 
That's exactly how I feel about everything. So yeah, I mean, it happens. But yeah, I don't think this was a winner. I don't think this was a good episode for Spotnitz or for Millennium. So it's no just chicken dinner tonight. Okay. Nope. Darn. I'm kind of hungry. All right. Well, so be chicken. It. <laughs> yeah, and and this is the first episode of Millennium that I have rated lower than you. Oh, wow. All right. Well, it had to happen sometime. I guess it had to happen. They had to pull me back in. <laughs> still television. Nick. And I got to say, gotta, the title of the next episode does it. not encourage me, but we'll see. I can't judge it by its title, so we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> Written by the person who wrote The Judge. Oh, lovely. So, that's that's going to be great. Okay. And directed well, by David Nutter. We'll so. see. We'll see. <laughs> Which I think next episode is actually David Nutter's last anything X Files uh, directorial duty, so I think it might be. So I know I'll look on the notes for that episode because I think I put them in there already, but I forget now because I've got too much stuff going on. So <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. I feel there's that. a lot going on. So inside and outside of this podcast, it's true. It's true. Yeah. But thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with our crap. Yeah, thanks for putting Lock, up with our moody crankiness. And, and my me cat. Crabby and <laughs> me being in the <sighs> middle of moving. So I'm just like at this point off my, you know, everything is just nonsense. My brain is completely mushed. So, yeah. Yay. And you and I probably aren't going to be recording for a few weeks because this is our last one before you take off. Yep. So, yeah. Oh, I have so much to do anyway. Guys, don't move. Don't move. Just hunker down and stay where you are. <laughs> Unless you live in a community where people are kidnapping your children because yeah. of all the stuff. Honestly, that though, if you Honestly, live in like don't do bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, if you weren't doing bad stuff, maybe someone wouldn't kidnap your kids to make them pay for your crimes. I mean, so. to be fair, yeah. But also, like, if you have somehow managed to get a hold of a 3,000 square foot McMansion with a three car garage and a gated community, I mean, hold on to it because housing prices are completely nuts and you can't, you're not going to get anything better. For- Although I do have to say, Edward Peaty, little judgy. I mean, okay, yeah, hit and run, kill an eight year old, definitely. Um, probably like embezzlement or some kind of theft. Mm, yeah. An affair? Fuck you. Fuck you. Mind your own goddamn business. Like, even I get the embezzlement it, or theft, like, depending on where it came from, it's not really worth killing a kid over. Like, not that, no, not that a hit and run is worth still, killing another kid over. But yeah, you know. Well, I mean, the intent wasn't to kill the other kid, right? It's to have the person. Right, I know to have the dad but, confess. Or but then just like have some balls and like just go kill the dude. Like, why you got to play this game? Yeah, like, exactly. It's too. It's too passive aggressive. It's too roundabout round about okay gotta go gotta go gotta go gotta go I'm start singing <laughs> and we can't do that all right bye 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 i want to rewatch is hosted by tori and nick and recorded in collaboration with black cat and orange tuxedo studios episode production design and editing is by lazy and productions our music is dark science by david hillowitz and the truth is what we make of it by the agrarian Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us for the next Millennium Monday, episode 12, Loin Like a Hunting Flame. (laughs) 
Oof. Oh dear. All right. I I haven't watched it yet. I have no idea what it's about. It just does not sound great. But My we'll find loins out. are we'll hunting for something like a flame. <laughs> that sounds. I, I mean, I don't know what this stuff is going to be about. I hope it's not about that. Anyway. <laughs> and together, we'll try to figure out if, if the, the truth, truth is, is still out there. there. Birkenbull, right? Birkenbull. Birkenbull. Birkenbuell. I think it's Birkenbuell. Birkenbuell. Bull's fine. Fuck it. You know what? TV writers, stop writing fucked up names. Just make. I like know. it doesn't need to be Smith and Jones, but you don't have to make it like this. Like it does not need to be like this. 